Broadsheet Radio Network. Countrymen, lend us your ears. It's a new episode of Shared History. That was easy. It wasn't? That was literally the easiest intro we've ever done. So great great job, Nat. (laughs) Pack it in. Uh, It's a job well done. We're done. I I like the idea of thinking of history as easy. (laughs) Oh, it's so So easy. Seldom is. (laughs) So easy. There's not that much to study. There's no nuance. History. You know what? And I feel like I feel like we're kind of done with it. Like nothing interesting or significant has oh, happened yeah, in the past. Definitely. You know, what? Six months, three years, <laughs> one half. Last, last like forty-eight hours. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> I'm stressed. I uh, I'm just going to introduce our guest because I'm really excited, and I'm going to uh, put her on the spot and decide that for her history might be easy because we love we love an academic guest that makes us feel like we know what's going on in the world. Uh, Our guest today is a distinguished professor in the Department of American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California. She is currently serving as the Interim Director of Research at the Huntington. Her own research explores the intertwined histories of race, place, gender, culture, and citizenship. And she is the author of many an academic article and also articles for the LA Times, Washington Post, the San Diego Union Tribune, and more, as well as several books, including the award-winning How Race is Made in America, Fit to be Citizens, Public Health and Race in Los Angeles, and her most recent book is A Place at the Nayarit, How a Mexican Restaurant Nourished a Community, which is on immigrant workers as placemakers, including her own grandmother, who nurtured and fed the community through the restaurants they established and served as urban anchors. I'm very excited to introduce all of you listeners to Natalia Molina. It's such a pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to have you. I'm just like blushing at your whole introduction because I'm just like, oh my God, accolade, accolade, accolade. I mean, (laughs) and you're on our podcast. (laughs) Speaking of accolade, I did neglect to mention uh, one that I now I have to. Uh, Professor Molina is a 2020 MacArthur Fellow. So swoon. No pressure. Double swoon. (laughs) No pressure. Yeah. There's literally no pressure. My favorite thing about introducing people is how stressed out they get the moment I do. Uh, <laughs> like, sorry, you're amazing, and we're gonna recognize that. That's my favorite thing about Natalie's intros. It's the more she like aggressive piles on to someone's. I'm like, oh my god, we're awesome. <laughs> yes, uh, Natalia, thank you so much for for joining us. I'm super excited to like dig in to the story that you've brought for us today, but also just like, I am really interested in your kind of area of research because it feels, your work feels like incredibly specific, but also not, if that mm. makes sense. Yes. What kind of like draws you to a research topic? Well, I'll I'll pick up on the way that you introduced the topic where you said, oh, history is easy and you, you both were joking around about it. And oftentimes when I'm in a public setting around non-historians, 
and I'll tell someone that I'm a historian and I work on immigration, people will say, well, now is a great time to be working on that. Or there must be a lot to, to talk about now. And I, you know, I often think, well, we, we've had immigration in this country for hundreds of years. So actually there's kind of not a bad time yeah. to talk <laughs> about immigration. We've also had backlash to immigrants for a long time. And for me, one of the things that draws me to it is that I come from an immigrant family, but I'm already a third generation uh, uh, Latino American. So I'm always interested when people, and my son's fourth generation. So I'm interested when people assume we're immigrants. I'm interested when people make assumptions about sort of where we came from and why we came. And they even contrast it with their own uh, history, especially if they came from, if they're of European descent. And so there's a lot of assumptions about immigrants and there's a lot of uh, ways in which we tell the story about race through the story of immigration. And so mm -hmm. all those things are what draw me to the topic. That's interesting because I do feel like people simultaneously their brain is always kind of uh, contradicting itself because I feel like people simultaneously think of immigration as like a current event constantly, but also are always bringing up their own background. So if if I don't under it's a cognitive dissonance of recognizing that you come from like we all come from immigrants and also being like, but that's a, that's a now problem or like that's a now issue or the hot button topic in current history when it's, no, it's all of, it's, unless you're Native American, it's your history. The other part is that we all, most people assume like whether people immigrated here in 2000, 1965, 1924, 1881 that they're it's kind of all the same they might think wow immigration is a, you know for those that think it's a problem immigration is a problem now because there's a lot of people immigrating but immigration wasn't a problem a hundred years ago when my family immigrated um and what we don't often take a view of is what i call the structural components of immigration so just, you know, laws, policies, how do people immigrate? Do you need a visa? How much did that visa cost? Are there enough visas for people coming from that country? If they're not, who gets to have a visa? Do you have to have a public health exam? Are there attitudes from public health officials towards people from that country? Do they tend to think they're disease carriers? Are women treated differently than men? Are working class treated differently than than um, highly educated professionals are people of, you know, um, a, a, a country where people aren't thought of as white. Um, are they treated differently from countries where there are white immigrants? Like there are so many things that shape our ideas about whether immigration is helpful or hurtful, good or bad, appropriate for this time or not. Um, and even people that agree on, oh, we should allow immigration. Should we allow immigration with documents? Not documents. Should people be allowed to come here and work, but then when that work is done, they have to go home. So in other words, they would be guest workers. 
there's just even such a nuance amongst people that think immigration is a positive force or that we need immigrant workers at least as laborers. And so it's such a wide ranging discussion. And so I always encourage people like, whatever your take is, maybe read a little bit about it. Maybe Google it. Maybe see if the law has changed about it. Maybe see what the numbers actually are before we kind of think history's easy and just start talking about, well, this is the <laughs> policy I would make. Yeah. I always say, you know, everybody's allowed, I always tell my students, you're allowed to have your own opinion, but you're not allowed to your uninformed opinion. So mm. back it up. Yeah. Well, that goes back to what Natalie said about your area of expertise seems so specific and yet so broad. Like what you just said, like if you were to just say like, oh, you talk about immigration, you just named like 20 sociological, political, economic, geography, history, so many different, very specific topics in one huge umbrella that we kind of tend to think of it as that yeah you can't just study one thing you get to study the whole of the of the sum well and the fact that all those factors are constantly changing and like public opinion on yeah. on different like groups of people are constantly changing it's it's so easy to think that like what everyone thinks now or the policies that are that are being developed or or are being overturned now are what they've always been it's like no it's like okay that's a microcosm of the immigration history of this country and of i mean obviously it'll be there are immigrants beyond america <laughs> but of the immigration history of even just this country like have has changed dramatically even in our own lifespans yeah and the other thing is you know even if people are listening to the, i'm assuming if people are listening to this podcast they love history but not everybody wants to pick up a history text and let me tell you i don't blame them i get it they can be dry historians aren't always the best writers but oftentimes if you google like an op-ed or something or the washington post has these like history matters you know looking back kind of things or even for me i don't necessarily want to read about the history of every country in the world but i'll pick up a novel you know um yeah. vietnam war you know, what about Viet Wins, uh, the refugees, history, you know, immigration to the U.S. What about Leila Lamani's work, uh, Latino immigrants in the U.S., you know, Sandra Cisneros. So whatever your jam is, you yeah, know, yeah. fiction, nonfiction, maybe you're, you want to listen, you listen to this podcast. There's always a way we can learn something in a way that we don't have to have resistance to. Yeah, I, it's you. You said early you don't get to have an uninformed opinion. You don't need to get a PhD on something to be credible talking about it, but you need to make the effort to expose yourself to it. And if you're not making any effort of reading a novel or listening to a podcast or learning about someone, then you don't really get get to say, I know exactly what to do here. I'll give you an example of one source that people love learning about. So most of us know that in this country in the early 20th century, we had this system of um, redlining, of segregation, you know, uh, for African Americans, they called it Jim Crow segregation for mm -hmm. Latinos. 
It was called, um, you know, people would call it Juan Crow, you know, mainly in the American West. And so talking about segregation. But then in the 30s, when we went through the Depression and we we're trying to, you know, FDR was trying to pull us out of the Depression, that's when we have the growth of the federal government, social safety nets like, you know, social security, um, but also this development of, you know, federally backed mortgages so people could afford a home, so that people could get these low interest rates. And so the banks had to decide well, who's a good risk or not? And so they sent all these evaluators out all over the US and they evaluated neighborhoods. Oh, yours, um, the buildings look dilapidated. Okay, then you're gonna get a low grading. Oh, yours has black people in it. You're gonna get a low grading too. <laughs> yours has Italian immigrants, Irish immigrants, and one black person. Mm, too, too diverse, it could change. <laughs> Racially subversive, they seem communist you're going to get a low rating too. So you might think, well, that was a hundred years ago, almost a hundred years ago, 90 years ago. Guess what? A lot of our neighborhoods still reflect that, those, that kind of investment. Cause it also, it not, it didn't just mean like where people could buy a home, but which areas got investment. Are they going to get their streets paved? Are they going to get, um, trees planted there is, uh, a school going to be built there? Hospital services? Are they going to put a freeway through your neighborhood? Mm -hmm. Are they going to put a prison in your neighborhood? How about a toxic waste dump later on? So there's all these kinds of things. So one thing you could do is you could Google these redlining maps and there's a website in which you can put in your city and you could see where you lived, where you live now and see what did my neighborhood look like 90 years ago? And I can tell you from my neighborhood, I live next door to an area that was historically redlined for African-Americans. So, you know, and, and Italians. And so guess what? There's like these Italian delis and these Italian restaurants in my area that have been here forever. There are African-Americans who have been here for generations. And, you know, you start to see the ways in which these patterns make a difference even um, to this day. I think there's a a website for Chicago where you can see all of the potholes. Like there was an actual website or app where you can see every pothole in Chicago and where, you know, where where they get fixed or if they've gotten fixed. And can you imagine where all of the potholes are that are not getting fixed? It, oh my God. I Natalie, do you remember this? No, but I have reported my entire street as a pothole before. <laughs> the city is like, what's what's the, they're like, what's the cross streets? And I just say, yes. <laughs> I don't know if it was an app, a website, if it's still running, but I was living there. I mean, it was probably when I was there like four or five years ago and someone popped up with this website and I'm like, First of all, there's a lot of potholes in Chicago, and wow, is it specific where they are and are not getting fixed. Yeah, we just, you know, I'm in LA and we've been going through our heat dome, um, you know, this incredible heat wave that we just haven't had before. And one of the things that affects it, obviously, is how much blacktop you have in the area you live in and how much tree cover you have. Mm -hmm. And even that is affected, right? Like tree, you just think like, 
a tree. Anyone can plant a tree. Well, no, cities often plant trees. Yeah. And you need to water trees. And you need cities to take care of them when they get sick. All these different things. So you can map where there was redlining. And then on top of that, you can map where there's tree cover. And so then you can then map how much heat um, difference there is across Los Angeles by wealth and inequality. Well, and then you just throw ecology on top of yeah. all of that, you know, that another niche thing on top of that big, broad, broad topic. And there is a environmental racism, which is something that more and more people are talking about. And people are like, what is that? Well, it's, it's something as simple seemingly as, do you have a lot of trees in your neighborhood? Yeah. When a storm takes one out, does it get replaced? Yeah. Et cetera. Yeah. I uh, I live in the Albany Park neighborhood of Chicago, which is for we've discussed on the podcast before how uh, Chicago is one of the most segregated cities in America. But weirdly, um, Albany Park is credited as being one of the most ethnically and linguistically diverse neighborhoods in the country. But I'll tell you what, our potholes don't. Good job, get Nat. Yeah, I know. I I did it. <laughs> You did it, Nat. It's all me. <laughs> um, but our potholes, our potholes don't get filled, and our trees don't get replaced. The weather's been bad recently. <laughs> it's I. This Casa's oh, gonna roll her eyes to the back of her head because I have, I think, in every episode of this season, brought up a book that I've recently read, and it's oh, been God. a different book almost every time. But I just finished reading, of all things, a like romantic comedy novel um, that was delightful. It's called After Hours on Milagro Street. But they talk of they I as an as evidence of history being able to pop up in any genre that you read, if you read or anything that you watch, I constantly it will highlight on my Kindle just like nouns. <laughs> that I want to like research later, like people who come up in like historical fictions that I read or whatnot, that I'm like, that person sounds interesting and they're like a background character. I and love the idea of you just having a noun notebook. I truly highlight just <laughs> nouns. Uh, I read something the other day and I literally just highlighted, oh, I, I read um, The Essex Serpent and I literally just highlighted Eleanor Marks to remind myself to research, to like read more about Karl Marx's daughter, Eleanor. Um, I think you are officially a history nerd. <laughs> I don't even do that. <laughs> Natalie, you just had a MacArthur fellow call you a history nerd. I don't know if that's like the highest accolade or, need to lie or down. the biggest burn. <laughs> but it's funny that I literally just finished reading After Hours on Milagro Street. It's by an author uh, named uh, Angelina M. Lopez because uh, the whole story takes place in this in a small mexican-american community in kansas and a lot of the plot is based around kind of saving the community and the history of the community and who they who the white people in the neighbor in the area refer to as the founders of the community versus like the actual history of of who actually kind of was responsible for the golden era of that area and part of what that even the one of like the Mexican American characters who grew up there is like, wait, you're telling me that all of our ancestors basically came up to this area to work on the railroad. I thought that like 
all it was all Chinese immigrants who worked on the railroad in America and like just learning about uh I don't know just history of your of your own community um sounds like you're suggesting there's some revisionist history going I on there now never. <laughs> I would I mean it's not wrong that a lot of that a lot of Chinese immigrants built a lot of the railroads but also there was a huge chunk of American history where immigration from China was banned. Mm. So that's a really great example of how, uh, you know, again, you don't have to, everybody does not have to read like this 800 page historical tome to learn about history. Um, and what's interesting about that book, and now I'm going to talk about a book I have not read, <laughs> that, you know, I don't think that book would have gotten published maybe like 20 years ago because people weren't really talking about Latinos in the Midwest 20 years ago. But with the increase of immigration and trying to show kind of different stories and not just coastal stories of just Latinos in, you know, on the West Coast in California and along the border or maybe like New York or Miami, um, you do have to then show how people got to these places, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Chicago, there have been Latinos in Chicago since the 1930s because people, one, they follow crops, they follow industry, they they immigrated to work. So they're going to go where the work mm -hmm. is. Uh, Chicago with its factories, like you just said, you know, Kansas with its railroads, but also farming. And so you end up finding Latinos in unexpected places. And so if I had a podcast, maybe that's what I would call it. Latinos <laughs> in unexpected places. But it gets at the same gist that your podcast does, right? Like once you find out why someone is there, then you're like, huh, what, how did this happen? So for example, um, and I know we'll talk about it later, but in the book that I just wrote, A Place at the, the Nayari, How a Mexican Restaurant Nourished a Community, there's uh, this newspaper that I look at as a source to tell these stories of people that, you know, their stories never end up in archives. But in their hometown newspaper, Echo de Nayarit, people would write in letters. It was almost like Facebook for the times. Mm -hmm. They had this like, um, this column called Ferris Wheel. It was like the gossip column of the newspaper. Ferris Wheel, because life has its ups and downs. <laughs> And then once a year, they'd have this anniversary issue and then people would buy ads like a yearbook or something. And they might advertise their business, but they might just use it as a space to have a message to, you know, their family in Los in that had remained in Mexico. And there was this one letter from this woman who says, hey, you know, Car I think her name's Carmen Morales. Hey, you all, here I am. And. Beverly Hills and I'm doing really well. And if you come to LA, I hope you'll visit me. And um, did I mention I live in Beverly Hills? <laughs> and so I thought like, how does this Mexican working class Mexican end up living in Beverly Hills? So I looked at the genealogical records. I looked at the city directories. Girlfriend was a housekeeper and a nanny. <laughs> <laughs> Is that awesome or what? But she wanted this story to be still tested. counts. <laughs> yes. Well, not only that, is she was the housekeeper nanny to Dominic Dunn. So Dominic Dunn, no, not Dominic. Greg, yeah. Now I'm gonna get Dominic Dunn, who was the brother, uh, your big Hollywood guy, who was the brother of Gregory Dunn, who's married to Joan Didion. 
I know, right? The writer. So girlfriend from small town Mexico is like two steps removed from Joan Didion. And you know what? That was, that was a, what you said, like a small newspaper publication, right? People are always think like, oh, it's gotta be the New York times or this big highfalutin. How much like big history do we get from small letters from seemingly small papers from these you know what most people would think of as insignificant because it's not something everyone knows that's where we get the most information of what real people were doing i love that that's a great primary source i love a primary source Cass is a sucker for a primary. Well, and speaking of primary sources, your your most recent book also, like your own grandmother is a primary source in it, basically, right? She is, but I never met her. You know, she passed before I was born. So that's why I had to look for these sources, like these newspapers. You know, I could interview people that knew her, including my mom. Um, there'd been a magazine article written about her. And then i was like there was this disconnect i was researching la to be able to say something about the neighborhood of echo park i was researching migration records to be able to see was her story typical or atypical i had city directories so i could tell you something about the neighborhood where she settled but um trying to put that the lives of the people that went to her restaurant and the workers at the restaurant in context it just, it was a little flat. And then I found that newspaper. And again, it was like looking through people's social media. Yeah. They had their pictures, they had their stories. You saw their their kids grow up because I, I looked at like a 20 year run of this newspaper. Um, what I really wanna do with that and what I've been working on is coming up with a curriculum for teachers so that they can teach their students how to do this. Not that, again, not that everybody's gonna write a book, but maybe, you know, some kid loves their local pizza place or where I live now, I live in, um, you know, the neighborhood next to me, I said is, you know, a large historically African-American population, but the neighborhood that I'm immediately in has a large Armenian population. And they came from all over, right? Cause you know, cause of war, because of disruption, there's this Armenian di diaspora so some speak Armenian, some speak Russian, and my mechanic has been there for like 50 years. He's got this gorgeous uh, black and white photo of his dad, grandfather, and uncle at their uh, auto, in front of their auto body shop in Jerusalem, and it's named Harantz, his last name, and now he has his auto body shop here that's been here for 50 years, right? My cleaners who, um, you know, they, they're, that cleaners has been there like for 50 years. So it's the dad and now he's passed it on to the son. And every time you go, they remember everything about you, right? That's what I call an urban anchor. And mm. so just by talking to them, I'm listening to that history. So I would love it if kids could be able to, you know, go talk to the local owners or workers, wherever they love to go, do a little an oral interview, maybe find one primary source to be able to give you like this extra dimension and do a TikTok video, do an Instagram, do a podcast, do something, right? Just so that we learn a little bit about history from the bottom up, up mm -hmm. instead of just kind of great mm -hmm. leaders in US history or war. Yeah. <laughs>
Cass, we have to take an ad break. Fair enough. But we're a history podcast, so we have to infuse this interlude with some tasty, tasty facts. Okay. Oh, tasty facts. Like brewing beer using hops became a standard practice as a result of early drug laws in Bohemia. Ah, yes. The Reinheitsgebot Law of 1560. I remember it well. Now that hops are no longer a legally required ingredient in beer, welcome to the future, our friends at Herbiary have taken it upon themselves to release your taste buds from the cages of convention. They've experimented with over 200 different herbs and botanicals, building on the rich tradition and fermented folklore of hop-free brewing. Learn more about their delicious section of brews and where to find them at herbiary.com. I would be obsessed with that assignment as a kid. I would, uh, I feel, here's, this is what, this is what, hey kids, uh, <laughs> this is, uh, this is Aunt Natalie speaking. Um, you know that skill everyone of my generation and uh, definitely the generation younger than me has of being able to find out in creepy amount about somebody that they just met at like a bar or in a class via... Kids, please don't go to bars. Natalie, remember you're bars. talking to the kids now. <laughs> uh, listen, I'm over 30 now. Kids are 21. <laughs> Kids are of age, uh, but you, you know how like you meet somebody and you can find their social media kind of immediately and immediately know entirely too much about them because you're very good at internet stalking people. Why don't you use that power for good <laughs> and channel that curiosity towards uh, like a mainstay business that you love or a place that means something to you or like ask your grandparents questions. I just use. I feel like our generation and gener and uh, like the Gen Z have grown up spoiled with the internet and are innately like good at research, mm. but don't think that we are. Yeah. But we have, we are so used to being able to just look things up, but we don't realize that like we kind of all have an innate research ability, but we just use it to find shirtless pictures of dudes or whatever. I don't know what people use the internet for. <laughs> I use it to highlight nouns in books. <laughs> and to see how tall celebrities are. <laughs> I use it to see how tall celebrities are. That's what I use. She has a noun book and a height book. It's weird. <laughs> oh, we should well, just... I'll give you... We... Okay, go ahead. Oh, I was going to just say, Cass, you should just start asking me in every episode whose height I looked up recently. <laughs> I'm going to do are it. You, are you often disappointed by how short they are? Oh, it's just a curiosity thing, especially if I see like two actors like next to each other and I get I start getting curious if somebody's on an Apple box. Natalie's pretty tall. Yeah, so I think that's where it stems from. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I, I just I just sometimes I just got to know. So you're a gatekeeper. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a height gatekeeper. As an as a female actor in a as a female in an industry where men tend to be short, uh, I just want to know. Well, let me give you an example from the book about another way you can do that. Um, and then I'll tell you the, the story about reading this at a at a book reading. So, you know, the other reason I was interested in writing this book is because not only is there hints of this history through, you know, the the shops around you or the newspapers, but just the people in your life. Um, I don't know if this happens 
how much this happens to white people, but let me tell you, this happens to Latinos where you call everybody like your uncle and your aunt, <laughs> even if they're not really related. And especially if you're an immigrant, um, and I think African-Americans do this to some degree as well, but especially if you're an immigrant and they're from your same hometown, oh, they're for sure going to be called uncle and aunt. Mm -hmm. And so there was this one day that we were... Uh, honoring the anniversary of my uncle's death and we we're praying the rosary and I looked around I'm like not only are these people not related to me they all worked at my grandmother's restaurant and the restaurant had closed and it was now a couple de decades later and yet they were each other's community their sources right so I, I write the community that grew up around the Nayeti remains tethered to one another to today I think about this community when I eat from the dishes given to me by my mother that Doña Natalia, my grandmother, collected. They're from the Franciscan ceramics plant in Atwater, hand painted with apples and leaves around the edges. The plant has since closed, but it's a popular pattern. As a kid watching I Love Lucy, my first English lessons growing up in a Spanish-speaking household, I noticed that the Ricardos own the same Franciscan pattern. Those dishes say a lot about my reserved grandmother. She wanted elegant tableware and she got it for herself, piece by piece. I like to imagine her setting her place and enjoying the sheen and the color of those dishes, not just as a sign of aspiration, but also as a way of embracing the place where she lived and asserting her belonging. So I read this at, uh, at uh, book reading and it was an older mainly Latino crowd and you know I know they're not gonna write a book and they're probably not gonna do a TikTok video but I said <laughs> but you know if you have a story to share have you told your kids your grandkids your co-workers the people you go to church with you know um, how much do people know about your family history and hand after hand just started shooting up and people started telling me what material objects they had in their home that said something about their family that they had not yet shared with anyone else. So one woman's like, I have my grandmother's Singer sewing machine. She taught me to sew on it when I was seven years old. I made my mom a dress with this zipper that I got from another dress. My mom has since passed, but I still wear that dress. Another woman said, oh my gosh, both my mom and my husband's mom have these dishes we got through collect that they got through collecting blue chip stamps. So we have two complete sets and I just gave one set to my daughter, but I never told her the story. You know, on and on people had this, these stories. One man raised his, his hand because he knew his wife wasn't going to and she was from uh, Burma. And he said, you know, because of the way that they left, because of war, she and, you know, and exile, she didn't bring things, but she cooks the food. And she'll cook for her whole family members, sometimes 50 people. And the memories of their home live on through the dishes she makes, right? So everybody had this story and none of them had shared them with family members because we think history has to be something that's told with a big H that belongs mm -hmm. in a book that can't be something that we're doing. Although 
What do we most want to hear about? We connect through the power of story, and yet we don't tell our own stories. And the way we learn and document our big H history is to compile all the quote unquote little H history. Without that newspaper, you wouldn't have been able to do a lot of the research for your book. You couldn't do, I mean, any historian couldn't do any sort of, I love it, big H history without all of the little H history. And when our grandparents pass on and we have all of their things and we're like, great, now I have a bunch of junk I gotta throw away. And if we know the reason it's there, then we have that purpose to keep it or we at least know what it's from. And I think people think like you have to be so prepared to interview someone. But you know, if you're not thinking of doing a big history project or something, you just pick up a picture. Who's that? Yeah. What was going on? Oh, my favorite thing to ask my grandmother was always about people who had been cut out cut out of photos. <laughs> I'd be like, well, what what happened here? Who's missing from this photo, Bobby? Sounds like we should not cro cross your grandmother. <laughs> yep. I think a lot of younger generations have a hard time or seemingly can have a hard time identifying or connecting with older generations. And they're like, I, ju I just don't know what to talk about. Ask questions, you know, that's the easiest part. And like grandparents love that. Parents love that. We forget that our parents are like real people. You know, <laughs> wait, you were a kid once like what? Well, they you spend so much time asking us like how our day was and checking in on us that yeah. it's it's easy to be like, and that was a conversation. But at no point did I ask my mother a question at like or at no point did I just listen when they said something because I was so busy answering or not and or just saying I'm fine. Leave me alone. You don't understand me. And so many people I know who have who lose parents or grandparents after or the fact they're like I, I wish i i wish i knew more about them i know about them in relation to who they are to me and what my life was going on but i don't know who they were as a person I will also, also say, were you named after your grandma you said donna natalia i was i was that's beautiful um, you know i will say also that one i never thought i was going to write about a book about this i had to give a talk and so many people came to the talk because the book is also about saying that, you know, with so much gentrification going on in so many areas, these kind of urban anchors, restaurants, or, you know, me mechanic shops, or, um, you know, mom and pop places, they're closing down. So they won't be there for you to ask. Um, I did this radio show for our local NPR, where uh, they call it, I think they called it like born and raised R-A-Z-E-D, like, you know, knocked down. Mm -hmm. And we talked about like kind of gentrification 2.0 because even the people that have like gentrified areas like Echo Park, the businesses, now even they can't afford to be there. <laughs> you, you know, did this to um, yourself. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like they, you know, even you know, and some of them came in and made meaningful connections with the neighborhood and was a place that the kids wanted to hang out or people wanted to go have a glass of wine there. Now even they can't afford it. Um, so the book is also a, a kind of way of saying. When we think about gentrification just improving areas we also have to see there was already life there 
It may not have taken the, the form of a Starbucks, but you know, these mom and pop restaurants with all their kind of like idiosyncrasies and you know, uh, laminated menus and not small plates, they still, you know, were, are meaningful to the neighborhood restaurants. And so, you know, not only do people die, businesses die, neighborhoods mm -hmm. die. And what replaces them, it doesn't, it's ironic that people are drawn to places like Echo Park, like Brooklyn, um, like parts of Chicago, because of that nonconformity, because of that diversity. But in doing so, it often means that the neighborhood changes and sometimes the yeah. people that have been there the longest are the ones that, that can no longer afford to live there. Oh, sometimes you just say something that is so on brand for you. What do you mean? You know, like you have a brand, the way you look and communicate, what you place value in, all of that. That's your brand. Just typical you being you. How do you know so much about brands? Oh, well, I've worked with Bates Marone Sweet Design. Who? Bates Marone. They're a boutique branding, marketing, and web design agency based in Chicago, and they've got great strategists, designers, and copywriters who all work together to make brands better. Well, how do they do that? They combine research and storytelling, they find out why a brand is the way it is, and then they bundle that up in a nice little package for businesses to take with them and use going forward. Dang, that sounds great. Mm -hmm. Are they just for huge corporations though? Oh, not at all. They have experience with all sorts of clients, from startups to Fortune 500 companies. Oh, wow, nice. Yeah. If you want to see some of their past client work, learn more about their processes, see what it takes to join the team, or if you're ready to schedule a meeting, go to their website, BatesMarone.com. B-A-T-E-S-M-E-R-O-N.com. Awesome. I can't wait to learn more. Um, I feel like we could talk about this for a thousand years, but I know that you that you brought us a specific story today. So so I um, tell us a story. So you know, I also love these, you know, hidden histories, right? And so for me, um, what I'm interested in is the way that certain stories are, well, at least known, but yet still not known, right? So one of the things that I talk about in the book, A Place at the Nayarit, how a Mexican restaurant nourished a community, is how because the restaurant was established in a geographic crossroads. I also call it a cultural crossroads. And so you have these Mexican workers and customers who came into contact with people that were different than themselves, right? Um, people uh, across the color line, race and ethnicity, but also class. You had movie stars there, Marlon Brando. You had baseball players because Dodger Stadium was down the street. And in doing so, they would also go out. So I, you know, in the book, I call them place makers when they make community in Echo Park and place takers when they go out. And so I have a chapter on place takers and place taking also involved working. And so one of the stories that's been told, but I still think is not well known enough, is that there's this Mexican busboy. His name's Juan Romero. He's 17 years old. He lives on the east side of LA, so East Los Angeles, but his dad works at the Beverly, um, I'm sorry, the Ambassador Hotel in Mid Wilshire. 
and his dad wants to make sure that he doesn't get into any, into any trouble as a 17 year old kid. So he says, you're going to work over here with me and I'm going to keep your eye on, my eye out on you. So Bobby Kennedy comes into town. It's 1968. You know, he's there for the California primary and he orders room service. Juan Romero, 17 years old, is the busboy who delivers the room service. And, you know, rather than just, you know, saying like, leave it there or not even acknowledging him, he goes up to him and he shakes his hand. And Juan Romero reports afterwards saying, I felt 10 feet tall. I felt like a person. I felt like I was seen. Next day, Bobby Kennedy wins the primary. You know, he does a big press conference. They're trying to avoid crowds, get him out of there. So they go, the Secret Service takes him through the kitchen and that's where Sirhan Sirhan is and he shoots him. Bobby Kennedy falls to the ground. Who's there? That same 17 year old busboy, Juan Romero. He gets Bobby Kennedy, he cradles his head. He, he, you know, he talks to him, Bobby Kennedy is, and Bobby Kennedy asks, is he okay? I think, which always just is like, wow. You know, it says so much about who he is. Um, and Juan Romero in his front pocket has a rosary and he takes his takes it out because he knows the Kennedys are Catholic, which is the other reason, you know, Latinos, Mexicans love the Kennedys. They felt an affiliation to them as immigrants, as Catholics. And he presses his rosary into his hand. And then he's moved aside because of course, Ethel Kennedy wants to be by her husband. So she takes his place. Those are the stories that are around us everywhere. We just stop to ask people, you know, where were, where were you when Kennedy was shot? What is your connection to 9-11? You know, we're recording this on September 12th. We now have generations of my college students. They weren't born when 9-11 happened. Asking people their story, you never know what will come up. That's a beautiful story <laughs> that I didn't, I, w I wouldn't have known. I was just going to say that was a beautiful story and I started tearing up a bit. And I mean, that was, that was recorded, wasn't it? Was that on film? Yes. There's, I, it wasn't recorded um, video. There was a photographer and he had yes. to make the decision. Do I take a picture, not take a picture? Is mm -hmm. it disrespectful to take a picture? But this is also history and posterity. Yeah. And so he took very few selected pictures. And so, yes, mm. if you if you ever see that image, look and you'll see Juan Romero is the one that's cradling Bobby's head. That's such a huge part of American history of the time. And who was asking who's who's that boy who's Juan Romero? And until they do, we don't have that amazing story or know anything about what was happening before, you know, when he, when he shook his hand in the hotel room and everything. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also to me an illustration of, you know, what I try to do in the book is that workers have full lives, right? <laughs> Things we should know, but still we go somewhere and we think of the bus boy. We think, you know, we don't like, we don't, it's just not the way we can operate in life to make a connection with everybody. Um, when you think when you're onboarded at a new job, people in your department may know who you are. They might send out a memo, 
But janitorial staff doesn't get that memo, right? And all of a sudden they're like, hey, wait a minute. I used to always empty this trash and it was full of Starbucks cups. Now it's, you know, full of power bar wrappers or something, right? Like and I'm going to tell all my friends what's in your trash if it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> right? Just these kinds of things that we we don't always see this. Um, you see this all the time in, in movies where people like, you know, the, the workers aren't the ones that we always get the story about. So mm. to me, this is just, it operates at so many levels that you don't think about Latinos and the Kennedy story. You don't think about busboys and the Kennedy story. So, um, you know, you don't think about how, I mean, the Latino community really mourned when JFK was killed, when Bobby Kennedy was killed, because of that connection, because of thinking, wow, this was somebody who was like us. They were an immigrant. They were Catholic. They were an outsider. Mm. Um, what I write in the book about, too, is my dad was at that ambassador that night. He didn't have any contact with Bobby Kennedy, but he was a bartender. He and his two best friends were bartenders. That's where they were that night. And they were held overnight because they didn't let anybody leave until they got a statement. And the next day, uh, he went to the Nayade, he wasn't married to my mom yet, and told that story. And so the book is also a way of saying, yes, they're Mexican immigrants, but they're connected to U.S. history in all kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. You just have to stop and ask. Yeah. yeah. We have a, a caste system in in the United States, there's one everywhere. We think of service industry workers as untouchables, you know, or the janitorial staff. They come in, they do their thing. That's the only way they exist. It's interesting. It's funny to me, uh, Natalia, because you brought up the, uh, you brought up it even in the context of like TV shows and movies. Those characters often don't have names. Like I, I auditioned the other day for X-ray tech. But that character, like still, those those utilitarian characters are just that. They're more. They're not background. They're always there to serve a very specific part of the plot, and that is no less true for anyone in the service industry or anyone doing any job. Like you might just see them as like your dry cleaner, but they have a they have a role in everything. How often in TV shows and movies is the housekeeper the person who like blows the whole murder mystery open like how often is it that these that these people who you think are on the periphery of your lives actually are the people who like recognize things remember things see things in stories and in media that's that's art imitating life y'all like that's not sometimes it is a handy plot device but it's it but it feels it doesn't feel tropey and it feels real and it doesn't pull you out of the story because it is real service workers and uh, whether they are whether you recognize you see them as immigrants or not are like part of the daily fabric of every single person so yeah and i think you know people might be like well okay what's the big deal but oftentimes those service workers are people of color Right. And so we tend when you see that repetition, it tends to inform how we think about people and we start to think about them as a type. And then when you couple that with we don't have a lot of historical 
um, stories about these stories where they're actors, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, playing those kinds of characters, there's this actress, uh, Lupe Ontiveros. And if you see her, you'll know who she is. And she died, she died a, a decade ago now, but during her career, she played a maid in movie and TVs 150 times. Which also means you have to do that dumb accent, you know, like, yeah. it doesn't matter whether you're, you're like third generation or whatever, you have to play this type. So now you have this type of where Latinos fit in the world, then you don't have any history to complicate that. And then policy wise, you don't have any protection for these workers. So we just have to look at the pandemic and see, you know, who was on the front lines and that there weren't a lot of protections if you were a farm worker, an agriculture, um, a meat packing, you know, factory worker. None of these places where immigrants and Latino immigrants are concentrated had protections. So it's both the, you know, that personal um, interaction that we want to be aware of. But if it really does bother you, then, you know, the next time you're somewhere where there's a heat wave or somewhere where there's a pandemic and you see who's doing the most dangerous jobs that you wouldn't want to, you know, it's probably immigrants when the pandemic started in 2020 that was what spring and then by fall in california we had these horrible wildfires so the workers kept picking they had these pictures of them you know in the pandemic with their masks so hot and with a wildfire in the background so you know it's it's kind of thinking about this as a three-legged stool what's the story we tell about race what's the representation um uh, and uh, the history that we have told about race. And then what are we do, doing about it today as a person and in terms of policy? Beautifully said. Uh, are there any other stories that you want to tell us from the book? I think I've gone on a long time. <laughs> You're nice listeners. Um, I hope that they will read a place at the Nayarit, how a Mexican restaurant nourished a community and Hit me up on social media if they're interested. I have a, also have a newsletter, which they can find on my website, nataliamolinaphd.com. And if you go to the bottom, you can sign up. And I try to tell one of these stories every couple weeks when I send a newsletter. I also have a moment of joy photo because otherwise this stuff would be very depressing. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, I think there's lots of ways to connect with me if they want to know more. I love that. Uh, well, speaking of a moment of joy photo... We love to get to know something that our guests have discovered recently, because just as Watson and Crick took uh, home a Nobel Prize for their quote unquote discovery of the DNA double helix structure, but actually it was Rosalind Franklin who discovered it, uh, history is full of a lot of things that people just take credit for. And you know what? Sometimes you have to be part of the problem. So. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Natalia, what is what is a discovery that you want to claim that you have made recently? Well, first of all, I have to say one micro way that we can disrupt that, because this happens all the time to women in meetings, <laughs> is if a woman says, hey, I have an idea of how we can deal with that. And three people later, and I'm sorry, it is usually a dude. A dude says, I know how we can deal with that and says the first thing that the woman did. <laughs> Says the same thing, then um, 
one easy way to make sure that these things don't go down in history incorrectly is just to say, thanks, Bob. But I think Christine just said that. Moving on. So yeah. that's, that's my little gender equity moment. <laughs> um, so I will use invention loosely. I remember I was the first kid in my neighborhood to bring gummy bears to the neighborhood after finding them at Knott's Berry Farm. And so I didn't invent them, but I kind of felt like I got the trend going. And Heck so in yeah. that same spirit, I, for my, I do a weekly plan and I use this passion planner and it's uh, invented really by this woman in San Diego. But I love it because what you do is you just kind of do this brain dump on what you need to get done that week. And then you write down like your work stuff, your personal stuff, and then you kind of block out times to do it. And I just find it, I just don't know how to organize my life without it now. So passion planner, you can buy it online and no, I don't have stock in the company. I just like it very much. And I like to support. You just discovered it. Uh, I like the idea. But if you guys want to give me free stuff, I'll take it. (laughs) The year is coming to a close. I'm going to need another one. I, I love the idea of you as a gummy bear pioneer. (laughs) I love those things that you just like take credit for as like a child, especially in your friend group of like, yeah, I remember I I started listening to the Backstreet Boys first. That's not even true. Yes, but exactly. I exactly. wore my jelly sandal slip-ons to school. And then and everyone was. <laughs> I also invented Vans. Yes. <laughs> and thank you for that. Thank you. <laughs> Great art support sometimes. Um, you already kind of dove into this. I was going to ask you, where can people find out more about you? Where can they follow you? What are your social media handles? We'll link all of them below, but where would you prefer people uh, find out what's going on with you? I'm on Twitter and Instagram at prof underscore Natalia M. And I do like to put little kind of history tidbits on the Twitter Um on the Twitter, I'm a hundred years old. That's we. That, don't worry, we say the same thing. We're like the Twitter machine. <laughs> I put it on Twitter, um, and then Instagram. I kind of do more of those happy moments. But since I am interim director at the Huntington Library, I have started posting little um, archival discoveries, and that part's been fun because it's not all related to my work. So, for example, Lisa C, the author, she um, found these lantern slides you know we think about slides but with the technology 100 years ago they were like glass slides and she found them in her basement and they were from a portrait studio in chinatown so you have these photos of chinese from 100 years ago and not chinese in a like look at them working on the railroads or Mm -hmm. look at just their immigration photo but how they would represent themselves and these family portraits and their dress and they're just drop dead gorgeous and we have them at the Huntington Library. That's awesome. Um, everybody go look at the all of the links and we'll have a lot of like visual aids and whatnot in the show notes as usual. You can I'm sure reach out to Natalia on on social media follow that newsletter because you never know when somebody's newsletter is going to be your inspiration and primary source. <laughs> for something that that you want to look more into and and create 
As always, you, if you have any questions, corrections, or suggestions for us at Shared History, you can email those to us at sharedhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And we'll post a bunch of stuff on our share on our social media, which is we're shared pod on Instagram and Twitter. And hey, we're on the TikTok now. And I have not changed the handle. So on TikTok right now, as at time of recording, maybe I'll change it to be consistent, but at time of recording, we're at shared history. So you can find us on the TikTok. We post a silly dumb things that fit the trend with that we make about history and also sometimes just one of us rambling a fun thing that we learned and telling you a quick story um like and for me a lot of them are about chicago's involvement in various uh larger historical events that you may not realize that chicago was involved in because i'm self-centered that way <laughs> about the city i live in and love Natalia, thank you for sharing such beautiful stories with us and taking such a big H history and reminding us that there are so many little H's inside of them. Well, thank you for sharing history with everyone. So I don't, that means that's that many less people that if I meet them, that they say, I hated history in high school. And they're going <laughs> to say, but then I started listening to this great podcast. <laughs> The amount of times our guests are split between people who love history, people who have pursued history as a career, and people who are very intimidated that they've been invited to be on a history podcast. And to those people, I love now that we can we can be like little little H history, because for those guests, we often just remind them we're like everything that you love has a history. So if mm -hmm. it's something interests you, chase that down the rabbit hole and 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 see where it leads you and oftentimes we get delightful very niche episodes from that um so yes thank you for thank you for building us a big h history by reminding us about the importance of all of the little h history and everyone um until next time share, share you later, you later.